0: Good morning, how are you? Good, good. Uh, My preaching would immediately improve if I had Peter's voice. Um, And I'm still waiting on an audio Bible from you. I need you to just read the Bible and I'll listen to you every day. Lord, I will be more faithful in Bible reading if I can just listen to the Peter Wilker audio version. Great. Uh, open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Acts chapter 13. Lots of scripture. I know your feet kind of got sore having to stand the whole time to, to hear all of that read. Um, and so I want to jump right in. That way you get home in time for dinner tomorrow. Let's take a look. At... That's not funny. I'm not making a joke. All right. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, so the, the Bible's packed with meaning. Uh, from a, you know, we, we could do a sermon from just that sentence or two right there. I promise you, I'm not. But I, I, I'm going to stop there and clue you into something. What is the aim of all this traveling? There's going to be a lot of narrative throughout Acts, as you're going to see. They went from here to there, here to there, from this awkwardly named place to that awkwardly named place, to this place and to this place. And it's going to be really easy for us to read right through the Bible, especially the funny, wonky, weird names, and just kind of ignore that stuff, gloss over it, not recognizing that the Word of God is trying to communicate valuable, important things, right? We, we tend to skip over books like Leviticus or Numbers, where there's lists of names and all these numbers and, and statistics being laid out. The Word of God is useful and, and timely and, and relevant, even in those seemingly uh, kind of marginal and mundane details. And so, what, what is the aim of all of this traveling that Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries, are doing? That the mission and the purpose of the Holy Spirit set Paul and Barnabas aside for was mission work the proclamation of the gospel we we just read last week that the holy spirit set aside these men for a holy and eternally significant purpose they were to leave where they were at and go on a missionary trip what does that mission look like throughout the new testament church planting Right This is not a, a tirade against the, the modern view. I'm, I'm not critiquing the modern view of doing mission trips to go and build um, uh, blind or deaf kids' schools or going to do puppet shows at, at, at a you know uh, at an orphanage somewhere in Czechoslovakia or, or Yugoslavia or someplace like that this is, this is not a critique of that, but this is a statement that we can derive from the Bible that God's purpose is his strategy for what, what, what we call mission his, his primary overarching strategy for mission is to go and plant churches. You, you don't see Paul, Barnabas, or other missionaries in the New Testament building schools for the blind or working at soup kitchens, um, distributing emergency medical kits, or performing puppet shows. All right, I'm, I'm not, Again, I'm not critiquing those things, but you don't see these guys doing those things. Maybe they did do uh, works of service. They clearly did. But what you do see them doing is preaching the Word In every place they come to, preaching the word in such a way that they want to um, urge and welcome, by the power of the Holy Spirit, people to be converted to Christ, and then those people would not simply become saved, but they would become the people of God, the church. And then you also see Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries raising up leaders, training and discipling them in all that Jesus has commanded them. And once there's a church, a vibrant body of believers under the qualified care, preaching, teaching, and governance of qualified elders, then Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries will pick up and they'll move elsewhere to go to new people who have not yet heard the news of Jesus. And what are they going to do there? Plant churches. All of this traveling is a mission trip to plant churches. And then the outcome of planting a church in Pamphylia or Perga or Antioch or Rome, the, the, the outcome that God is really driving at is to see that rather than the missionary showing up and doing all of these works for maybe limited times, right? the outcome he's looking for is to plant a church in Uganda or Scotland where people who live in that culture will come to know Jesus they weren't part of God's people, and now they are God's people, and now they are God's people as the church in that community. That's when you see schools for the blind, schools for the deaf. Deaf. That's when you start to see puppet shows and orphanages uh, happening, that sort of thing. It was ominous. Um, that, that's when you start to see soup kitchens abounding, because then in that community, the people of God doing the works of Jesus, carrying the words of Jesus, that's when that stuff gets done. And so this is Paul and Barnabas. They are church planting. They are going about church planting. I want to encourage you just with, just with this opening few sentences that you are part of the legacy of what God has been doing and planning for since the beginning. You are part of the legacy of the Apostle Paul, of Barnabas, of John Mark, who's with them. Right? You are part of the church planting, planting legacy of God, the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel to all the nations of the world. This is an important key point um, today in this passage. I don't want you to miss it because I'm gonna, we want to ask and answer the question today and practically every day, which is, what is, what is God doing? That is, we're going to look and see, and Paul's going to preach a message, and all he's going to do is say, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what God is doing. Let me tell you what he's going to do because of these things. And it's very easy to gloss over or, or kind of lose the weight of that. It's very easy to, to lose the vision. I'm, I'm talking as church people. I'm, I'm, I'm talking as a church planting pastor. It's very easy to forget with, with an entire testimony of all that God has done. It's very easy to forget and not be encouraged and empowered to be comforted and ministered to, to be held up by the testimony of what God has done. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, God's command to his people is, remember what I've done. Remember what I've done. When I take you across a river that you shouldn't be able to get across, pile some stones up, make a sacrifice, name the place, and tell the story to your kids. When I, when I have you march, we you take your marching band around the city and it falls down, if you're a band geek, that's your chapter of the Bible, okay? When, when, when I lead you through that, you're going to name the place and write the story down and tell the story. Joshua, as he's handing over kind of his governing authority of the people of Israel at the end of his life, he, he tells them, don't forget all that God has done. Joshua's sermon, when you read that book about when, he, when he's done, he preaches an entire sermon. Just, it's just a history lesson. This is what God has done. We are the people of this God. This is what he has done. This is what he's doing. This is where he's taking us. Don't forget it. Teach it to your children. Write songs about him. Write songs about the glory, his faithfulness of what he's brought us to and through and into. This is our God. Don't forget what he has done. What is God doing? We we want to ask and answer that question uh, because it is encouraging. Um, it's extraordinary. It's significant. In brief, the answer to what has God done is this. What God has done is what He's always done. It's what He is always doing and what He always will do. God is faithfully executing His ongoing plan to rescue and redeem this world. His ongoing, ever-faithful never ending until his kingdom comes plan is to rescue and redeem a world that he made good, but it fell and was fractured by sin. He is working inexorably, all right? I'm I'm, geeky $20 word, inexorably, unstoppable, right? Just mercilessly, although he's a merciful guy, just mercilessly moving forward. Nothing will thwart, stop, hinder, slow down. God's Inexorable inexorable plan and movement toward redemption of his people, toward the full and complete revelation to the world of his glory. That is what God is doing. Now, that's a big, broad, theological, preacher in the pulpit type of answer to that uh, question. What is God doing? Paul is going to teach a very practical history lesson, a very practical history lesson that is just dripping with the gospel. So let's take a look at that. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. The the world is asking this question. The world is asking, even if they don't know that they're asking this question, every human being who's ever had breath in their lungs and, and blood flowing through their veins, ever ever lasted long enough in this existence of this world, every single human being has asked this. They go, is there any encouragement here? What's the meaning of this? What's What's happening? What, what, what is God doing? Is there a God? If He is, what is He doing? What's He like? What does He think about me? Am I okay? Is there any end to this? Is there any, any reconciliation? Any healing? Is there an answer to this? The world is asking and seeking from every person, everything, and every new idea or initiative we we go to philosophy. We go to religion. We go to governments and elected officials. We, we look to, we've looked to kings, to media, to science and education, and we go to everything we can. And we ask the question: Do you have any word of encouragement for me? Do you do you have any kind of significant, lasting, meaningful foundation for me to understand what's going on? We tell. We we ask. The world, we we say, tell us that it'll it'll be okay. Answer our questions, fulfill our hunger for food, our thirst for drink, make us feel safe with weapons or safety protocols or security systems or governments. We ask, we look for and seek encouragement. We say and plead with new leaders, new presidents, new gurus, new self-help teachers. Please make me feel safe. Please make me feel worthy. Please make me feel valuable. Protect me from my fear of mortality. Tell me the secret plan for, for dieting, for exercise. Show me the medical procedure that might eke out a few more years of longevity. The, the trick to not getting cancer. The biological code to stop aging. We look around our world and we plead, give me some encouragement. We, we look to all, all manner of things, all manner of things saying, please cure me of my shame. Please cure me of my sense of failure. Tell me I'm beautiful because I fear the ugliness of my soul that I sense. Explain to me what to do with my fear, my failure, my guilt. How do I purge my mind of the things that I've seen and heard? Tell me that. That that if there is a God, tell me that He approves of me. Tell me that I'm not wrong in His eyes. Tell me how to to fix this. Tell me what I can do to placate Him. Because in my heart of hearts, when I really get down to it, I know there's no way an actual holy righteous God that can create things by the powers. There's no way he really thinks that I belong on his team. What would he want from me? I, I got nothing to bring him. Tell me that God is okay with me. And if he's not okay with me, how do I get there? Do you have any word of encouragement? The world asks this, as I said, of philosophy. We, we go to philosophy, to medicine, to technology. We ask it of money. We ask it of entertainment, we, we, uh, of vacations, of careers, of education. We, we look to our parents. We look to our children, to sports, governments, to science. We take these things by the lapel and we plead shaking with them. Have you any word of encouragement for me? Tell me what's happening. What is going on here? What does the future hold? What's the meaning here? Do you have any word of encouragement? Validate me. Kill my fear. Show the way. Settle my soul. And here, to this question, to this prompting, by the Jews, Jews of the synagogue, telling Paul, if you have any word of encouragement, tell, us, tell it to us now. Here's the Holy Spirit's response to us via His servant Paul. Verse 16. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man, of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This history lesson look at what God is providing to the people of Israel. He, he is responding to the needs of the people of Israel. You can see through this thread, it's, it's a really quick summary, but if you read the, the Old Testament and you see the narrative, God's people are God's people. It says, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And, and that's all we've ever really needed, but we are people who look to the world rather than God. We look to the things that are created and go, do you have any word of encouragement for me? So the people of Israel are in Egypt, and they're enslaved. And what do they think they need? What will save them and give their lives meaning? Freedom from oppression from the Egyptian rulers. So God gives that to them. Where does that take them? To the wilderness. Now they're free, and they're, they're no better off. All right? They are better off, but they, they're still blind to the fact that they had God Almighty as their God in Egypt and in slavery and, and they're still not in their freedom looking to God Almighty as their source, as their healing, as their validity, as their significance, as their salvation. It doesn't matter where you go, it, 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 whether you are in slavery or free, we're, we're still enslaved to something, and, and they're looking to freedom. What, what does God then do? He, he gives to them He gives to them um, the land of Canaan. Well, what we need is we don't need to be in this desert. What will save us will be land. Will be kingdoms. Will be cities. A fertile land where we can make a way for ourselves. And God God says, I'm going to give that to you. But stop looking to these things to save you. Because you're you're not going to be any better just because you've changed location. But I'll, I'll give that to you. I'll provide. I'll respond. I've got a plan. I'm working for your good. And so he takes them to the land. And what do they do? They forget him. Over and over and over again. So they say, we need some people to tell us what to do. So he sends them judges. Said, we need some people to tell us what's up. And, and what do we do with the judges? We ignore them. All right, God's people ignore the judges over and over again. And then we, we, we know what will fix this. We need a king right? We need, other nations have kings. They're really super awesome. That, that, that king looks like Chuck Norris and this one. They got a Stephen Seagal type over there. They have an Arnold sword. We need a king to, to rule us and, and to provide and protect for us. That's what's going to solve our problems. And God goes, you, you do need a king, but not the one you're at. Oh, all right, I'll give you Saul. Let me, let me show you that all the things you are pleading for and wanting aren't going to fill you up and actually serve you in the fullest sense that you think it's going it's not, to... He's like, Here's Saul. Oh, we don't like Saul. I, I, I know. I, t- here's David. David's a man after God's own heart. And they soon realized that David's a man of war. He's got some of the bloodiest hands in all of the biblical history. He, and yet, he, he, as, as a guy who God himself goes, that, that guy's a man, as good as he is, he still dies. He's a terrible father. His, son, his sons rise up and rebel against him. He's got political strife. He, he murders his own cousin to try to cover up the fact that he impregnated his cousin's wife while his cousin was away at war, all right? So you think you're a wreck. You're like, oh, God must not be happy with me. I haven't read my Bible very well this week, all right? You're in good, you're in good company with David who murders his cousin right? and sleeps with a woman who does not belong to him, all right? You're in good company there. A king won't do it. God, you... Talk to, to us directly. We have a king. We got law. We got these judges. Just talk to us. And goes, okay, that's all I've been doing. All right, I'm going to send you guys, and they're going to tell you exactly what I say. The prophets. And what do we do with them? We murder them. We kill the prophets. God, talk to us. God is not happy. Repent and turn. You are facing judgment and discipline at the hand of righteous God who loves you and you are whoring yourselves out as a people, searching for other gods, searching for other kingdoms, searching for other things and idols. Turn toward the Lord. That's a terrible message. We don't like that. God would never say that to us. Kill him. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the narrative, throughout the history that, that Paul is preaching here, we see this outplay of us as human beings going, you have any word of encouragement will you please save us will you please fix this will you please redeem and restore it will, will, will you will you help us but we we don't don't really we, we go and grab kings and prophets we, we, t- we, we grab for land we grab for money we grab for power we grab for popularity we, we grab for everything else and we shake it by its lapels and go make me significant give my life meaning give me eternality. And nothing we can lay hold of with our hands in this world can stand up to the weight of what we're putting on it. Because none of those things can give us that meaning. Paul is teaching history lesson. What he's doing, he's going, word of encouragement, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what God has done. This is what God has been doing. And what occurs here in your midst on Sundays? What, what occurs and possibly should occur more sometimes than it is in your community groups? Possibly not taking place enough in your DNA groups or in your shared coffees or meals with one another as, as a Christian family. What should be taking place in your text messages, emails, and Facebook statuses? What should be happening? Telling one another, teaching one another, reminding one another what God has done. That's the gospel. is the testimony of what God has done. You're, you're surrounding yourselves with one another. Uh, my church, we're, we're doing the same thing. And so much of the time, we wonder if we're actually getting any traction with the spinning of our wheels and, and our relationships with one, 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 one another. I'm praying, trying to encourage one another. I, I need a brother. Can you please come and hang out with me? Can you please pray with me? Can you counsel me? Can you help me? What better... What better gift do you have to offer to your brothers and sisters in Christ who need encouragement than to go, let me assure you of what God has done. Let me take you to what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's promised He will accomplish. If all of this is what He's done and He promised to do and He did it faithfully and perfectly, how much more can we hope in all that He has yet to do? He's faithful. We can put our hope in Him. He's got a perfect track record that we would... Sit under what Hebrews chapter ten says. We we often proof text this verse and go. Where's Bible verse that's supposed? You're supposed to go to church. Thou shalt go to well. Hebrews ten, right? Let's not neglect the gathering, right? So you better come to Sunday morning service because it says right there. Let's not neglect coming together on Sundays. That's true. That's helpful. That's good. But let's take what Hebrews ten very very seriously. The writer says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The heart of Christian encouragement, the heart of encouragement in the Christian community, the people of God, is learning, knowing, remembering, and reminding ourselves what God has done. God reveals Himself through talking and doing. He speaks and communicates, and He demonstrates the truth of what He said through His faithful action. With all of the emphasis on education, in, in America, we Americans are um, are relatively poor students. All the money we just throw at education, we're, we're still just not really, again, getting up the hill as far as education. We're, not, we're just not seeing a culture and a value in our students or our parents or even some of our teachers. To, and I former high school te- English teacher, I taught for 10 years, so I'm not, any of you are teachers, I'm not capping on you. I, you guys are in the trenches. God bless you, okay? But there's still just not this... Value, even though we throw all this money and marketing toward education, we, there's not a value to be good students. And what is a, stu- it's a disciple? That's what a student is, a disciple, a follower, someone who's going, please teach me. I will trust you as the expert and I will model myself and, and learn and take in and then apply what you've taught me. And Christians are supposed to be students. We're supposed to be disciples. American Christians tend to not be very good students. What Paul offers, and he offers it because it's needed for encouragement, is a history lesson. And I pray that his history lesson, his teaching of us, we would take heart and have a value as students for what God wants to teach us through our brother Paul. Among the things that Christians in America tend to be poor students in are theology and history. We we tend, this is, I'm talking about church family, not just us, all right? I'm not holding. GCC or my own church, RCC up as the paragon of, of, of the example of how it's supposed to be and everyone else's losers, right? But I'm critiquing just the, the, the wide family of the American church. And, and church after church, it, it may, for, for a large majority of the time, it may be disheartening to come in and see that from, from the pastor to the people, that clear, line-drawing theology that unabashedly, lovingly and humbly, preaches Jesus and his theology from the Bible in a clear, meaningful way, it's, it's, it's weak a lot of the time. And as well, the American Christian, we tend not to have any sense of where we've come from and what God has done. Now I'm in a church, I, I, I sing songs, I I give some money, I'm in a group, we have a Bible study, I'm reading the Bible, I am praying, I'm giving money, I go and do some activities with my church, I mean, even inviting friends to my church, but without a sense of how you got here, without a sense of understanding the long legacy, the the just endless amount of circumstances, people, times, and places that God has arranged for us to be here and be his people, we, we don't have a very good sense of who we are and what God means for us to be. We're just at a task rather than being a people. We tend to know very little of the things of God. That is, we are generally poor students of the Bible. And we know little of the things that God has done because we tend to be poor students of His church and what He's done through her and to her. Learning theology teaches about God's character which is testified by His Word. Learning history teaches that God's nature is true by seeing that His work in history demonstrates the testimony regarding His character found in His Word. You see Jesus in the Gospels. He he doesn't come with a ministry of healing, although He does do that. He comes with a ministry of preaching. He preaches theology, know me, see me, touch me, follow me. And so you can know and I mean what I say, and I have the power to accomplish all that I promise, I will heal. I'll I'll show you my mastery over the human body. I'll show you my mastery over the wind and the seas. I'll show you my mastery over life and death itself. The words of God attested to and affirmed by the works of God. We as Christians must know and engage both. We must be good students of both theology and history. So what Paul is doing here is giving a lesson. He's he's Teaching history, he's essentially telling a story—the greatest story of all time, because it's true. I love movies. I love novels. I love short stories. I love epic mov—just movies and stories. I love series of books right? I can get geeky and list some science fiction and fantasy stories that are just five or six books, you know, just installments long. And at the end, some of you who are with me, fellow kind of nerdy romantics, you get end of the series and you're, you feel like there's been a loss in your family because there's no more stories about your favorite characters and you don't have any more, all that you have left is to go back and reread through it again. You're like, oh man, that's all we get. Just Harry, Hermione, and Ron on platform nine and three quarters and There's no more stories left over. I'm so sad, right? I love stories. Greatest, most magnificent, mind-blowing story in all of human creation right here. Are, are Are we gathering our friends for midnight reading, lining up? To, to get out there and read the next installment in the Jesus Games. Right? right. May the Lord be ever in your favor. Right? Right? right. right. Craw- yeah. We'll do the cross thing. call, Whatever sign it is. Right? Great. And it's true. That stuff's fantasy. It's great. This is true. I, I would... I'm, I'll cite Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York. Tim Keller and, and some others have, have reasoned rightly that... Every truly moving and inspiring story that mankind has ever told simply reveals the internal spiritual wiring of mankind. A longing for good power, rule, and rescue. The longing for a much needed and desired king. Whether the story teller is a person who fears God or not, whether they're a Christian or not. We have yet to escape the hunger given to us, each of us, as image bearers for Jesus. And it comes out in our stories. It comes out in our stories. Even unbelievers in denying the truth as they tell stories, they still tell the truth. This is Romans 1 coming out. They, they know the truth, but they don't know the truth. And even unwittingly, as we write stories of what we believe would be epic and, and, and grand and courageous and brave and gracious, we create star- characters and, and all these arcs of good triumphing over evil. That's just an echo and shadow of the story that Paul is telling, the true story. Literature is a great gift to Christians because stories help us to reflect on and see what God is doing in His story. In, in reading and seeing what mankind has written under, under the grace of God, we can see that there is a true love. There is a true love full of graciousness and self-sacrifice who's willing to be imprisoned on your behalf. Who will, by that power, miraculously transform you from a beast into a prince? There is an, a coming prin- prince in your slumber who's going to come and wake you up with a kiss and take you back to his kingdom and make you his bride. There is, though you were cursed with a sting to die, there is one who showed up and said, I will soften this sting and you won't die when your finger is pricked. You will sleep. You will slumber. But I'll send the prince to come and rescue you and he'll save the whole kingdom. And he'll kill the dragon. There is a world just beyond our perception. A war raging against us from demons who infiltrate our souls and power structure. There is a new man. We can be assured that there is a new man, a Neo, who has given his life over, as prophecy foretold, defeating the enemy and ushering us into that newer and realer world. Do you see this? As Christians, we get to embrace like movies and literature because we, as long as we have eyes to see and perceive, ears to hear and understand, we'll actually see that it's just echoes, just shadows. This history lesson that God, Paul is preaching to us—it's just, just an echo of what God is doing, of what God has done. Story after story shows us our need and therefore our value for things like sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, grace, justice, protection, and hope. Those are values, humankind, whether you're Christian or not, those are things we all value, those are things that we esteem. And it just shows the underlying hunger of every human being for what some of us will accept and receive and what many of us will deny and reject because we'll look to other things and created men, created women. Created objects for that salvation. Paul's story is the best. It's history. It's what we call the meta-narrative of the Bible, this, this whole passage there that we just read. That is to say, when when we pick this up, this isn't 66 books, separate, different books that were tossed together, um, because they talk about things that God has said that will lead us to a life of ease or happiness or comfort, convenience, a, a way to avoid trial and tribulation, or Suffering. The Bible is 66 separate but united books telling one story. Just one story. It's what we call the meta narrative of the Bible. The whole story is that God established a plan to address the fracturing, the breaking, the spoiling of His creation by sin, and that He would forgive and redeem mankind and the world He gave mankind to, that He would mend the relationship between holy God and sinful, wicked man by sending Jesus. The God-man. That's, that's the overarching, meta- that's what the story is all about. And it is rich and far better than our wildest dreams can come up with. Paul's story, by the way, takes pl- he, he, he takes the people of the synagogue through these stories. By the way, th- these are stories that these people, they, they're religious people, they're church people. They're very well acquainted with the Torah, with the histories. What he's doing is he's, he's drawing them to see what they've already learned and see it rightly. He's going, you know who Moses is. You know who Joshua is. You, you know who the judges were. The kings. We love those guys. The, the prophets. Sorry, bros. We, sorry about the whole killing you thing. right? But we know these stories. And Paul is saying, let, us, let me walk you through and have you see what God is doing. You see what God is doing, but you're not perceiving what God is doing. You're hearing what God is doing, but you're not understanding and listening to what God is doing. Because you missed the point. And here's how we know. He's going to go on and tell more of the story, and he's going to show them what they're missing. It's right in front of their face. And I would argue too often, despite Pastor Kirk's best attempts, despite my best attempts, despite some of your best attempts, so often we pick this up and it's staring us in the face. Our eyes are blind, our ears are deaf. When we're dumb and we're slow, we're resistant failing to recognize the weight and the glory and the security and the encouragement, the power of what God has done. So that's, that's what he's going to do. In fact, he's going to show them Jesus. He's taking them right to Jesus. Look at verse 26. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent a message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Interesting, by the way, I don't have this written in my notes. It's just interesting that... The message, the early message of Acts chapter 2, the early message, the early preaching of the church, um, it it was the spreading of the news that Jesus was alive. That was the gospel. That was the the unbelievable. Jesus is alive. There's a resurrection. A guy came back from the dead and he's living. Clearly he's God. Clearly he's the Messiah. You need to come and hear about him. But while he's around for the next 40 days, you you need to come and meet him, right? Come and see him, come and touch him, come and eat with him, right? is the message of this resurrection. That was the wildfire of the gospel. It was it's so cool. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. All that God promised, how has it fulfilled it? By giving Jesus He's been, what, is, what has God done? He's been preparing the way, making straight the paths of the Lord, preparing the times and places perfectly, sovereignly, and then fulfilling totally his promise to send him aside is Jesus. He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as far as the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, this is Psalm 16, by the way, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. May God make it so that Easter is every Sunday. That we would show up, wake up. Every day would be Easter, waking up with the knowledge, the excitement, the security, that there's an empty tomb and an occupied throne. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus' life and death and resurrection are the culmination, the apex of God's story, of God's plan. This is what God has been preparing the stage for, preparing people, pointing people toward for thousands of years. Jesus' mission, the, the point of his entrance into human history is to serve as God's gracious, wise, good, and mysterious Mysterious response to the sin of our world that condemns us and enslaves us. Jesus is, Paul is telling you this story so you can see what God is doing and what God, is, what God has done, what He's doing and what He's promising. Do you have any word of encouragement for me? Tell me what validates me. Is there anything in my life besides getting up, going to bed, getting a spouse, making some kids, working a job, going to some little league games, having some great vacations that I have pictures of later on. Is there something beyond this? Something that actually gives us meaning? The waking up, going to bed, waking up, going to bed. I could point to houses I've built or churches I've planted. Or or businesses that I've raised up. I can point to plaques as employee of the month or employee of the year. But at the end of the day, I know I'm going to see corruption and all these things are going to burn up too. Do you have any word of encouragement? And Paul goes, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what he's doing. And it's Jesus. All that you hunger for, all that you ache about, all that you fear and concern yourself with, it's a result of sin and there's a response, there's a solution to this. A perfect solution, a perfect response from God, and a solution is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. I I have uh, just begun reading a book. Um, I feel pretty smarmy and educated and highfalutin for reading this book. It's by uh, a pastor from the 1700s, uh by the name of John Owen. All right, if you read a book by John Owen, you get immediately uh, just. A hundred angel bucks for being a snooty theologian uh, reader. John Owen wrote a book called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. One of the major lessons that Owen is trying to teach is that mankind has always underestimated or flat out denied the existence and power of sin. We don't like sin. We don't like talking about it. We don't like admitting or recognizing that we are sinners. And if we, we do, we tend to, especially here in America and our modern, we go, "Oh yeah, I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, no one's perfect." That's not the thrust of sin. Not that you're. oh, I mean, you know, I'm only batting, you know, 998. I should be a thousand, but I'm only batting 99. I know I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm bad. But we underestimate your batting average in the, is in the negative digits it's in it's negative infinity if that's mathematically possible we we underestimate not only the power of sin but we underestimate and don't recognize we don't fully our our society doesn't really embrace and recognize the truth that sin is a is a real thing we deny some things about sin its existence in the first place, its danger and its power, its depth about how bad it is. We ignore and deny the the breadth of sin, how far into and across our lives it spreads. We also, John Owen is teaching, we also tend to underestimate the power that God's love has in forgiving us that sin and empowering us to actually kill that sin in our lives. There is a prevailing Belief in modern America that it's backwards, foolish, naive to call something sinful. The underlying heart of our society is that nothing is sinful because there's no sin. That's an old fashioned, archaic, close minded view to have. Say sin, Pff, sin. Because if, in order to recognize that there is such a thing as sin, then you have to actually recognize that there's such a thing as righteousness. And if there's sinful people, then there's a righteous person. And that righteous person will have nothing to do with sinful people. That's us. And we think we're good. We think we're good. We want to be good. And we want to deny the idea, the assumption, the, the, the world view that we may be not pretty unique snowflakes. And that God would inherently like us. He would obviously want us on our team because I'm not as bad as that guy over there. We're not as bad as those people over there. To recognize sin is to recognize God, and we don't want to do that. The belief is that if sin exists, then we'll actually be robbed of hope, right? Because sin is so bad, and everyone's got it, and it's destroying everything. That seems pretty hopeless, and it is, apart from Jesus. So we we, we avoid sin. We avoid talking about it. We avoid confessing it. We avoid revealing it in our lives. Our society denies its existence. Because it seems to bring us no hope. It robs us of hope. To acknowledge that you've sinned is to recognize you've harmed and offended, rebelled against the Holy God who rightly judges and condemns you. Even the ungodly know that people go to hell for sin. What ungodly people don't understand and they need to be made to understand is that Jesus went to the cross so that ungodly people would not go to hell. They don't recognize that. If you acknowledge sin, because you're like, why are we talking about sin? It like took a wild left turn off of Jesus and the story and what God's doing. Why, why are we here? You don't acknowledge this. If this is not a real true weight that you're carrying and understanding and manipulating in your mind, then the cross is cheapened. Jesus died as a resp- response to something. And so if you're going to send your son to die and sacrifice for something, it better mean something. What he purchases with his death better, better be valuable, better be invaluable, better be, better be just priceless, right? This is God's response to sins. We need to understand it. If you acknowledge sin's existence, this is really interesting. Acknowledging sin's existence doesn't remove hope, but instead it prepares us to have hope. Because if there's no sin, there's no explanation. There's no explanation or reason for the obvious suffering and wrongdoing in this world. If there's no such thing as sin, we have no explanation for what's going on around us and in us. We, we, if we reject sin, then we have to put on our black turtleneck sweaters, sweaters right? Put on a, a little, you know, side cap, smoke cigarettes, and shrug our shoulders and go, Oh, c'est la vie, all right? And, oh, that's just life, right? Tornado sweeps through a town, kills hundreds of people, destroys homes. Well, there's no sin in the world. I mean, it's just just what happens, right? Guy shows up at a UPS office. Blows away twenty people, right? Ruins and destroys lives. Takes his own life. Leaves the wake of destruction, terror, sadness, and brokenness. Well, I mean, I—that's what happens. That—that well, that was sin. That's an old archaic thing. There's no sin. This, this is what happened. There's no explanation. Then there's no why. How did that happen? How can we prevent it? How can it be solved? How can it be? How can we be rescued from this? The why that we constantly ask, but with no sin, there's no why. With no sin, there's no hope, no comfort, no reliable belief that the world around us, including our own lives, will ever be repaired or healed because there's nothing to be healed or repaired from. Sin is real, and acknowledging it in our lives, in our world, prepares us for hope. It might not give us hope, but it prepares us to receive hope. Of what use is the view that there is no such thing as sin? Of what use is that then in the oncology ward of a hospital. Right, well, that's cancer. Well, it happens. What use is that in the viewing room of the funeral parlor? Crying and weeping, I've lost, I've lost my loved one. What do I do? Where, where is he? Where is she? Where is she going? How do I think about it? Well, who knows? why do they die well clearly not sin that doesn't exist that's a fairy tale made up by religious people who need a safety blanket because they're too afraid to face the world right so there's no such thing as sin that just happens people die circle of life ask Mufasa what good is that it's of no use and therefore it leads to no hope in the darkened bedroom of a lonely abused child how is that useful how is that good Of what use is this high-minded, sophisticated view to a military veteran returning home from a world of IEDs, starvation, violence, despair, rape, theft, and constant danger? A poor man or woman suffering from PTSD and guilt over the fact that I survived and my friend next to me did not? If there's no sin, then all we have to go is... Happens, I guess time's going to have to heal all wounds, bro. Try to get a job. Try to acclimate yourself back into this life. As well, if there isn't any such thing as sin, then the, observ- the observable behaviors of men and women that we see as wrong and evil, there- there's no reason, there's no logical reason, there's no imperative to intervene. If there's no such thing as sin, why should we intervene? Speak up. Say anything. Why should we step between the strong as they eat the weak? Why in the world would we ever try to halt the advantage-taking of the rich over the poor? Why would we ever speak up and oppose the big taking from the little? That's just, the, just nature, man. That's the evolutionary cycle. There's no sin. There's no right or wrong there. If there is no sin, then there's no intervention. There's no hope for intervention. If there is no such thing as sin, why have a police force or a government or any laws whatsoever? Because what I believe I would like to do, how dare you stand in my way as I take from this person who has something I want? That's not wrong. That's not sin. But if there is sin, then we have actually a hope that there is intervention. And not simply from humankind, but that there is a divine intervention to protect and forgive and stamp out and conquer sin, which leads to death. If there isn't sin, there isn't really anything wrong. But the very essence of our minds, our bodies, our souls cry out in opposition. What on earth is happening? How to get this way? There's something wrong. Why cancer? Why a miscarriage? Why doesn't he love me anymore? Why do I keep hurting myself? Why, why do I keep shoving people away? How will this abusive cycle ever end? When will this nightmare end? Will it ever get better? Will I ever see any justice in my life for the wrongs done against me? Is there any way I can ever be forgiven for the great wrongs in my life? Is there any way to get it cling to my shame and my guilt? Now there is sin. and God's story, what he's been doing is faithfully And inexorably, sovereignly, authoritatively, powerfully, wisely, graciously, and justly acting in human history. Providing the culminating response to our sin and our destruction, which is Jesus Christ. Acknowledging sin doesn't rob us of hope, but prepares it. The hope of Jesus. Jesus is God's response to sin. Sinners must answer for sin. Justice has to be done. So Jesus receives that justice for us. Sinners need grace, which is the unmerited favor of someone stepping up to take our place, the judgment we deserve. So Jesus Jesus gives us grace and he takes our place. Sinners need a teacher and a shepherd to show us the path of God's commands in life. So Jesus is provided faithfully by God. This is what God is doing, providing Jesus. So Jesus is our shepherd, caring for us, guiding us, teaching us. Sinners need a king to rule us, to protect us, to provide for us. Jesus is our king enthroned on his glory. Sinners need hope that in the, on the other side of this life, that at the end of our bodies wasting away, that on the other side of an oncoming car no one could ever plan for, that on the other side of this, there's real, true, everlasting life. There's no cancer, heart failure, no tornadoes, there's no sin. All of these things, all of these symptoms of the sickness which is sin, Jesus is our hope in his resurrection. That there's something on the other side. Do you have any word of encouragement from me? I'm walking in and limping into church. I'm having a hard time singing the songs. I'm really having a hard time feeling it. I'm having a hard time just simply obeying the, the, just the elementary level of what I know God wants me to do and how to think and act. I just don't have it in me. Do you have any word of encouragement? What has God done? What is he doing? What has he promised, and you can hope and believe in faith that he will do? Jesus. God has a planned and thoughtful response to sin. Look at all that he's done. Jesus wasn't some last minute problem solution that has Father and Holy Spirit and Jesus sitting around the boardroom throwing darts, trying to brainstorm what are we going to do here? We gave him freedom. We gave him land. We gave him judges. We gave him, we gave him kings and prophets. We gave him the Bible. What do we do? What, this was not some last minute solution of procrastination. I, I guess, Jesus, I guess we put it off long enough. I guess you're going to have to go down there and die. No. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world were laid, God chose to elect and love you and save you. And he elected then the way he would accomplish it. By the blood of the Lamb of God come to save the world from its sin. All of human history reveals those with eyes to see the oncoming grace grace of Christ on the cross. With eyes to see since the cross history has been about the proclamation of this news. So Paul tells them this is how we get to Jesus. I encourage you. What do we do 2,000 years after the cross? What is this history about? Do you see that? I have a heart to try to plead with us. but preached to myself to see through the lens of human history, to, to see through that lens, the gospel, that God is at work. He was at work in the Old Testament. He was at work in the New Testament. He didn't stop then. He's, work, he's at work in this now, the church age, and until His kingdom is fulfilled and totally brought, He's at work Now, and Moses had his day, Abraham had his day, Joshua, David, the prophets, John the baptizer, the apostle Paul, Barnabas, Peter, Timothy, John, they had their day. Now you are in the story. Now, today you're in the story. You are in his story testifying to what God has done what he is doing, calling people to faith in his work, in his person, in his grace, to have faith in what he will do. Your part in the story is to be what Jesus told us to be, his witnesses, to testify to this story. Tell the story of God's History. See the world in history. All events through the lens of what God is doing. He's never surprised. He's not going, oh no, what do we do now? He's got it all accounted for. He's perfectly wielding and leveraging all events and times and places, good or bad, for His glory and your joy, for your good. Tell the story in the news. Let's reread verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for ongoing, limitless, never-ending grace and love Part of our sin is that in loving you, we don't love you as fully as we should and could. So we even need your grace in the act of loving you. We belittle your story. We, we don't really carry the weight. We don't stand in awe enough of what you've done, how perfect your plan has been, how nothing thwarts your plan, how nothing causes you to wring your hands going, oh no, this is unaccounted for. A car wreck, the cancer, the loss of job, the wayward child, oh no, what will we do now? God, nothing distresses you in this way, but you perfectly account for and faithfully fulfill every promise. We pray, Jesus, that we would be believers of your gospel, transformed by the news that you are alive, Jesus, and you are enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. We thank you for the privilege, the honor, the gift it is to be your people. We pray that we would be witnesses, testifying, telling the great story the great story of God's never-ending, undying, faithful, unstoppable plan to redeem sinners, to love us while we yet sinners. Lord, we, we pray that you would minister to us and change us and set us on this path. We love you, Jesus. You are the king and you are the best. Amen.